term Christianese. Christianese, you know what that means. Christianese is that language that Christians speak, people, church people speak, that nobody else understands. It's the little cliches and phrases that we have and nobody else knows what they mean. We know what they mean, but nobody else knows what they mean. One of them is like living intentionally. You know, or you ever heard that one? We're going to live intentionally. And, you know, if you're, not, if you're not in the church culture, you go, yeah, of course, we're living intentionally. I'm, I'm alive. I'm intentionally alive. You know, it's like, but it's, it's one of those little phrases that we have. Another one is kingdom-minded. You know that word, kingdom-minded. Another one is, and I love that one. There's another one, like, let's just love on that person. Let's love on him. You know what I mean? If you're not a church person, you're like, excuse me? You want to do what? Uh, um, let go and let God right? Let go and let God. I, I think that one accidentally slipped out of my mouth the other day in a sermon. I'm like, man, I just said it. I just put it right out there. But of all of the cliches in the Christian vocabulary, there's a word that stands out that at least in my background was, I think, particularly overused, and that is the word revival. Revival. Some people use this term revival to mean like an attendance drive, we're going to have a revival. We want 700 people to come to church. We're going to have revival, you know. Um, another way that it's used is like a multi-night uh, series of singing and preaching that is meant to stir up the hearts of the congregation, right? So you say, we're going to have a two-week revival, and there's going to be guest preachers and guest speakers. When I was a little kid, we would have these revivals, and that meant, like, me sleeping under the church pew, uh, you know, somebody scooping me up at midnight and taking us home and then getting up for school the next morning, and our teacher's going, man, you guys, like, we're having revival. Preachers, when they hear revival, they think of an opportunity to preach a little bit louder and a little bit longer than they normally would. And they say, we're going to have revival. Um, in fact, in the, in the churches that I grew up in, there was a phrase that we would use often. And it was, Lord Jesus, bring revival. Bring revival. Somebody say, bring revival. Okay, now we said it. Now we did it. So... Over the past few weeks, we've been exploring these seasons that God has us in in different times in our life, and we've been exploring a season of rest, and then we talked about a season of reconciliation, a genuine forgiving and and seeking forgiveness. Uh, Then we talked about a season of recovery last week, and that's really letting God work inside of us and transform us from the inside. And then today, we're talking about a season of revival. But what what does that term revival really mean? for us in our daily life, and then in light of the particular circumstances going on in our community right now, what does that term revival mean? Our city, as we continue to await the grand jury announcement in the Michael Brown case, questions of life and death, questions of justice and injustice, questions of peace and chaos, questions of hope and despair have been hanging over our community like a billowing fog. And many are asking the question, where do we go from here? What do we do in this situation? Uh, 
the, the, the shooting death of Michael Brown has, has really divided many in our city and, and across the nation. And it's launched a national debate about race, about justice, about law enforcement, poverty, crime, and that, unseemingly, that seemingly unbridgeable gap between the dream we have of our country and the reality that we experience on the day-to-day basis. And in the face of the gravity and complexity of these issues, some people just simply choose to ignore them. They, or if they acknowledge them at all, they kind of give pat, shallow, self-serving answers, and then they shrug their shoulders when somebody doesn't agree with their perspective, as if their perspective is the only one. Others become uh, overcome with grief and anger, and they strike out in violence, or they turn to bitterness and despair. And then others genuinely acknowledge the, the, the issues and the problems, but they can't provide any direction or any leadership or any progress or solution. They don't have any way forward. And so this week, this, these issues have weighed very heavily on my heart. And I've been praying and studying and, and asking God, what do you want me to say about revival in the midst of the circumstances that we are now facing? And I kept coming back to a question that is a little bit of a Christianese kind of question. It's a little bit, uh, in milder circumstances, it's kind of a trite phrase. But in these circumstances, I think it makes a lot of sense to ask. And the question is this. If Jesus were here today in the flesh, if he was here at the Tivoli, if he was sitting in one of these seats or preaching from this platform, what would he say? What would he feel? What would he do about the problems facing our community. Today I'm going to read you a story about Jesus that I think captures maybe better than any other story in the Bible, both his humanity and his divinity, his strength and his vulnerability, his incarnate power and his human frailty. I'm going to read you the story about the death of one of Jesus's dear friends, a man named Lazarus. In John chapter 11, verse 1, it says that a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, and they said, Lord, the one that you love is sick. Now, we don't see this in the English, but in the Greek, there are four different ways to say that word, the one you love. There's storge, that's the kind of affection that a parent has for a child. There's eros, that's the kind of romantic love that's between two lovers. There's agape, that's the kind of unconditional love that God has for his children. But the writer didn't use any of those words when he said, the one you love is sick. And that's not the word that Mary and Martha used, none of those three words. The word that they used was the word philia. And philia is this kind of love that develops between two friends, two comrades, two people who share mutual hopes and mutual aspirations. It represents that deep bond of loyalty that can only develop between two people whose affection for one another becomes like that of a brother or a sister. That's philia. If you have a brother from another mother, that's philia, okay? It's that deep deep affection. And so Mary and Martha used that word philia 
because they want to remind Jesus of his affection for their brother who is sick. In essence, they're saying, your dear friend, your beloved brother is sick. We need you. Come down and heal him. And so we would expect if Jesus has this kind of emotion for this man, and this is his friend, when he hears the words, the one you love is sick, we would imagine that Jesus would drop everything that he's doing and rush down to the bedside of his friend. But Jesus' conduct upon hearing these words is cryptic and strange, and it's almost incomprehensible what he does. Because in verse 5 it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. That makes no sense whatsoever. So he loved them, and so he stayed where he was for two more days. His brother, you know, his, his dear friend is sick and dying, and he stays where he is. He doesn't go to his bedside. That doesn't sound compassionate when you read that. That doesn't sound like a friend. That sounds neglectful. That sounds callous. That sounds cold. And you want to ask what kind of a man with the power to stop suffering would allow his friend to continue experiencing an agonizing illness? What kind of a man with the, with the ability to heal purposely avoids his dying friend? What kind of a man consciously chooses to allow his friend to gasp for air with, and with, with a word he could fill his lungs with life? What kind of a man would do that? What kind of a friend is that? And then, as if to add insult to injury, after two days, Jesus utters this strange statement to his disciples. He says to them, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. And then here's where, when we're reading the story, we have to pause and ask, what is he thinking? Why is he not only withholding his healing power, but he seems to be relishing the fact that by his delay, he has allowed his friend to die? Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad I was not there, he says. That seems so antithetical to the Jesus we know, the gentle Jesus, the kind Jesus, the Jesus who heals strangers, the Jesus who goes out of his way to alleviate suffering of those in pain. I'm glad I wasn't there. It's a phrase that almost sounds sadistic. How many of you have ever had a friend that says, I cannot worship a God that allows the kind of suffering that we see in the world? You know, I wouldn't worship a God who allows epidemics and poverty and tsunamis and violence and earthquakes. I can't worship that kind of God, people would say, because that kind of God must either be a powerless to stop the pain or evil for failing to intervene. Jesus' disciples may have thought that he didn't want to go down to Bethany because the last time he went down to Bethany, he almost got stoned to death. Maybe it was fear or self-preservation. When he was down there last time, his presence caused riots and he barely escaped with his life. So they were probably sad to hear the news about Lazarus, but they were probably relieved that they wouldn't have to go back down into this dangerous and hostile territory. And so two days later when Jesus says, okay, it's time. We're going to go down to the home of Lazarus. His disciples objected, and they said, Rabbi, last time you were down there, they tried to stone you, remember? 
why would we go back down there? And he had one disciple who's probably the most cynical and skeptical of them all. Uh, and, and he voices his disapproval in a classic example of first century sarcasm. I've always loved this verse. Verse 16, then Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas is that, you know, passive aggressive jerk of a friend that we all have, you know. It's like, yeah, okay, fine, we'll do it, but we're going to fall right off a cliff, you know. That's Thomas. Love that guy. Jesus loves even Thomas's. So Jesus and his men head down to Lazarus's home, and then on verse 17 it says, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Why that detail? Why four days? Jesus was trying to prove something, and we're going to circle back to this, but Jews believed that the soul of the deceased lingered around the corpse for about three days. For three days, it was in this sort of liminal state where it was lost and confused. It was lingering between life and death. In other words, old movie reference, as Billy Crystal said in The Princess Bride, corpse after three days is only mostly dead. So Jesus shows up on day four, solidifying the reality in the minds of everybody that was gathered here that their friend is truly, completely, and entirely deceased. Verse 32 says, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You can almost feel that the the pain and the accusation in her word. There's a lament. There's a sorrow. But there's also the stinging accusation. If you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. You could have averted this tragedy. You could have stopped this suffering. You could have alleviated the pain, Jesus. Where have you been? And perhaps some of us today are asking that question in our own lives. God, where are you in the midst of our turmoil and pain? Where are you in the midst of our suffering? Where are you in the midst of illness? Where are you in the midst of anger and despair that seems to cloak our city? Where are you in the midst of injustice? Where are you in the midst of poverty and hopelessness? Where are you in the midst of senseless violence that has plagued our land for centuries? Some are asking, where were you? At 12.02 p.m. on August 9th, when Michael Brown and Darren Wilson locked eyes for the first time. Where were you for those 90 seconds? Where were you as the shots rang out? Where were you, Jesus? If you had been here, this tragedy could have been averted. If you had been here, things would have turned out differently. If you had been here, our community would not be in turmoil like it is. If you had been here, a father and a mother would not have lost a son. If only you had been here, where were you? Verse 33 says that when Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Some translations say that he was groaning, that he was sobbing with the other mourners. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. We see a, a Jesus in this moment that doesn't feel 
so familiar to us. We see a Jesus who is racked with sobs, a Jesus who is doubled over with grief. We see Jesus as a man. We see him as a person just like us. We see a man who loves like us, who feels like us, who grieves like us, who suffers like us, who longs like us, who cries like us, who weeps like us. We see a man. But here is the difference between his weeping and the weeping of those around him and the weeping of some of us today. Jesus doesn't weep as one who has no hope. Jesus doesn't weep out of despair. He doesn't weep out of dejection. He doesn't weep out of despondency. Jesus weeps because he feels the grief of those who, unlike him, are not yet able to see through the eyes of eternity. He's not weeping for himself. He is weeping for us. He's weeping for you and for me. He's not weeping at, because he's sad at the loss of his friend. He's weeping because he feels the suffering of all who suffer. He sees our doubts. He feels our fears. He feels the weight of our confusion and discouragement. And so he weeps because he loves us. That's why Jesus weeps. He weeps for the poor. He weeps for the downtrodden. He weeps for the hungry. He weeps for the lonely. He weeps for the broken. He weeps for the addicted, the fatherless. He weeps for every parent who has ever lost a child. He weeps for every mother whose son is in prison. He weeps for every widow. He weeps for every child gone astray. He weeps as he stands at the grave of Lazarus. He weeps for his friends. Because for them, they think that death is final. For them, the grave is the end. For them, their beloved Lazarus is gone forever. And so Jesus weeps not because of death, but because of blindness. In other words, he weeps because we cannot see what he sees. We can only see the temporal, the finite. He sees the eternal. We see someone lying dead. Jesus just sees someone slumbering. We see the finite. He sees the infinite. And that's why he weeps. But the good news is that the story does not end with weeping. In fact, no story involving Jesus ends with weeping because Jesus is not the Lord of weeping. Jesus is the Lord of rejoicing. For followers of Jesus, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Jesus brings beauty in the midst of ashes. Jesus brings the burning flame of hope to the billowing fog of despair. Jesus doesn't just heal. Jesus doesn't just restore. Jesus doesn't just resuscitate. Jesus revives. Jesus takes that which is dead, 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 and brings it to life. Verse 38 says, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, by this time there is a bad odor, for the body has been in there four days. Martha is the consummate host. She's still worried about funeral propriety. Like, Lord, it shall... King James says, he stinketh. We're like, yeah, okay, Mary, Martha. We got you. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? 
So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. This is where Jesus departs from other great teachers, other great leaders, other great philosophers and religious figures in history. Jesus doesn't claim merely to understand death. He doesn't claim merely to know about life and the resurrection. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus claims power over death, hell, and the grave. Jesus claims to be the Lord of the universe, the final and ultimate judge, the great and mighty king who will reign for all eternity, and so he calls Lazarus out of the tomb. The friends and family standing around the grave are scandalized by his bold and unprecedented command. They're offended by the audacity of this itinerant preacher with worn-out sandals and calloused hands. They're outraged by his lack of decorum and this undignified outburst. But then the impossible happens. Verse 44 says, The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. Here's what I want to say to you, City Family Church. Jesus doesn't want to just put a patch on the brokenness in our city. He doesn't want to just put a band-aid on the wounds of tension and division that have been festering for over two centuries. He wants to bring death to division, death to injustice, death to despair, death to hopelessness, death to violence, death to sickness, death to poverty, death to homelessness, death to hunger. He wants to put those to death so that he can demonstrate the glory of God by raising hope from the ashes of discouragement, peace from the flames of violence, joy from the watery grave of mournful tears, freedom from the chains of sin and oppression, and life from the tomb of destruction. That is why Jesus let Lazarus stay in the tomb for four days because he didn't want a healing. He didn't want a resuscitation. He wanted a revival. And that is what revival is all about. It's not about big services and attendance drives. It's about a death, burial, and resurrection inside of you and inside of me. It's about a new life for your soul. It's about the breath of Jesus filling your spirit and awakening you to your mission and your purpose in life. It's about the Holy Spirit filling you with the power to bring the life and the light of Christ into the back alleys and the broken streets of our community. It means the death of your old nature. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. I am buried in baptism and I am resurrected into the life of the Spirit. Revival means that your old self is dead and gone and you are raised with Christ and released into a new life in the spirit. That's what revival means. Earlier I asked the question, if Jesus were here today in the flesh, here at the Tivoli, sitting in one of these seats or standing up on this platform, what would he say? What would he feel? What would he do? And this is the revolutionary, mind-bending response of the gospel. Jesus is here today in the flesh. He is here at the Tivoli. 
He is sitting in these seats. He is standing on the platform. He is in us, and we collectively are him. We are his body on the earth. We are Christ in the flesh. And it's not just us, but it's the millions of men and women and children all around the globe who call him Lord, who are filled with his spirit, who are dependent upon his grace, and who carry his cross. Jesus is here. We're the body of Christ on the earth. It's us. There's no person. There's no company. There's no political party. There's no organization. There's no agency that has the ability to heal, to restore, and to, yes, revive like the body of Christ when we work together with a common purpose. Because being a follower of Jesus doesn't mean you get a free punch card to heaven. It means that you've been chosen, you've been commissioned, you've been ordained to act as Christ's ambassador on the earth, his emissary, his representative, until such time that he returns to rule and reign supreme over the kingdom that he has called us to build. You with me on that? So what do we do? We do what we're doing now. We pray, we fast, we give, we serve, we build, we build community, we love, we learn, we forgive, we seek forgiveness, we comfort, we encourage, we mentor, we disciple, we preach the gospel with our mouths, with our hands, and with our feet. We have courage. We get engaged in a multi-ethnic multi-generational, vibrant, and growing community of Jesus followers like the one here or somewhere else, somewhere, get engaged with people who are experiencing the transformative power of God in their own lives and then who in turn are taking that out into the community around them. It means that if we protest, we protest in love. If we seek office, we do so with an eye towards justice and mercy. If we climb the corporate ladder, we do so with the intent of giving to the work of Christ. We become all that we can be for the glory of Christ and the advancement of his kingdom on the earth. That's what we do. The great irony of the story of Lazarus is that it was this miracle that precipitated Jesus' death. This was the miracle that ultimately led to his crucifixion. It was Lazarus' new life that led to the cruelty of Christ's crucifixion. He came down to Jerusalem, performed this miracle, and the religious leaders said, enough. This is out of hand. We've got to take him down. And it was that crucifixion that led to his resurrection, the event upon which we place all of our hope. Today, I'm going to close with the words of a statement that was issued on Friday by Michael Brown Sr., who was the father of, of the man that was killed on November 11th. And he said this, the father said this, no matter what the grand jury decides, I do not want my son's death to be in vain. He said, I want it to lead to incredible change, positive change, change that makes the St. Louis region better for everyone. We live here together. This is our home. We are stronger united. Continue to lift your voices with us and let's work together to continue to heal and to create lasting change for all people regardless of race. You see, Jesus died that we might have life. Sometimes God can use a death, no matter how tragic and senseless, to awaken a new life in those who remain. So I would just say, may God fill us with his spirit today.
May we die to ourselves and be raised to a life in Christ. In the coming days and weeks and months, may we all, every person in this auditorium, every person outside of these doors, experience a season of rest, a season of reconciliation, a season of recovery, and by God's grace, Lord Jesus, bring revival into our hearts today. Bring revival into this place today. Because we have some healing to do and some restoring to do in a deeply divided city. We have some revival to do. We have some raising of new life to do in our city. And I believe God has called us to do it. I believe God has uniquely positioned us to do it. This church, every single person here, we are ambassadors for Christ, stepping out and doing what he's called us to do. Amen. Amen. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we come before you right now. And we ask, Lord, that you fill us with your spirit in a, in a fresh new way. Bring revival into our hearts. Bring revival into our lives. Help us, Lord, to leave here today with a renewed sense of who you have called us to be and what you've called us to do. Help us, Lord, to, to not be divisive on the the polar ends, the political ends of the spectrum on these kinds of issues, but to be a source of unity and strength and hope for our community, for our city. Let us lead. Let us take the lead with love in the remedying and the healing and the restoring and the reviving of what you would have us do and be as a community, Lord. Father, we know that you've called us to build your kingdom and we're here to do it. We ask that you give us wisdom, give us courage, give us strength in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Uh, let's all stand together. Can we all come together? I'm going to have our...